I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration podcast. Today's podcast, as per usual, is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about the Republic of Suriname, previously known as Dutch Guiana. Located on the northern coast of South America, this roughly square-shaped nation borders French Guiana to the east, Guyana to the west, and Brazil to the south. Modern Suriname is one of the smallest and most ethnically diverse countries in South America, with up to nine recognized languages and many different ethnic groups. At just under 165,000 square kilometers or 64,000 square miles, Suriname is roughly the size of the US state of Washington or Tunisia. The country's population is around 560,000, most of whom live in the capital city of Paramaribo, near the mouth of the river Suriname. The climate here is hot and humid year-round, as the country lies just a few degrees north of the equator. As a result, its southern portion is dominated by lush, dense rainforest. <laughs> Originally established as a British colony, Suriname was eventually traded to the Dutch in 1667 for a little island on the east coast of North America, then known as New Amsterdam. Good trade. Since gaining its independence in 1975, Suriname has maintained close ties to the Netherlands and is today the only sovereign nation outside of Europe where Dutch is spoken by the majority of the population. So Suriname, uh, one of the things that we've been doing recently is talking about the things that we're most looking forward to learning in this episode after our many hours of research. Joe, do you want to talk about what's uh, one thing from the episode that people should be listening out for? So I, I, I had two things, but you, you kind of hinted at it there in your intro. So you, you, you stole one of them, which is just uh, I was going to comment on how, ah. how the colony was was like. Luckily, you got another one. Yeah, the, the colony only cost the Dutch uh, a very big apple. Um, oh, in order geez. to acquire ah, yes. boo uh, boo yeah uh, the, <laughs> the other thing is just like the surprise of you look at the map and you're kind of like alright South America so we're going to have Spanish speaking kind of mixture of white and indigenous people done and then you know it's full of Dutch speaking Hindus and it's all very unexpected yep. <laughs> As a place, you just kind of, this doesn't, what? Yeah, I mean, we talk about ethnic diversity a lot mm. in, in, I feel like, a lot of different ways. Um, in, in, in reference in to a lot of In an uninformed way, mainly. Uh, in, in maybe an uninformed way. But this truly is, a, 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 a like, a real melting pot. Like, I think, unlike anywhere we've ever, ever covered before, I think it's, it's, it's kind of hard to overstate exactly how ethnically diverse this place is so i think it's it's going to be really interesting to talk about we, we will kind of touch on the different groups as they become introduced mark what about you what are you what are you looking forward to talking about um i guess some of the like th- they had a very strange relationship with world war Two. they weren't not involved but they were at arm's length and just the ways in which world war ii influenced life in suriname there's three or four events i'm going to mention and they're all 
just slightly one-offs, particularly the, the visit of the crown princess uh, is particularly pretty cool, I think. In exile, presumably. Okay. In exile, yeah, from mm. Canada. That's actually, I don't know much about Dutch, about the Netherlands in the war, in the war yeah. so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think we've talked about it before, but we don't really generally confer too much before we start recording. No. So a lot of this is going to come from, as new information for, for myself and Joe as well. Oh, oh so. and I suppose one, one other thing I'm looking forward to is, um, like, we always give the English a hard You're time. You're only supposed to have one, Joe. Sorry, <laughs> but we, we always give the English a hard time. It's right. kind of nice that for a change. Shower of bastards, that's why. Oh, we're, we're trying to do not explicit. Yeah. Shower of, shower of <laughs> not fine fellows. Unfine uh, fellows, yeah. I will say. I will state that. Shower of scoundrels. It's going to be nice for a change to see a different European nation uh, doing colonialism at a similar or worse level of badness to, to the British. Yeah. It, it is true it enough, is yeah. true that the nice colonialism stuff is equal opportunity awful yeah. it's yeah. not uh, yeah the, the the old the old germans in namibia not not, not great mm. not great stuff there anyway yeah for me i think we, we 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 talked about it beforehand a little bit or i know you posted about it on facebook joe's the, the flag mm-hmm. is like probably one of the best flags that in my opinion that it's we've, a kick-ass flag we've seen it's a strong uh, flag so far and i think what's really one of the things that's really interesting, and we'll talk about the what the the symbology of the flag and design and that when it comes up. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is 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 they went from possibly one of the worst flags I've ever seen, and uh, for uh, like as a nation, you know, national flags uh, to probably one of the better flags that we've ever we've ever encountered. I mean, so. it was it was better than a Liberian county flag, but only slightly. Mm. Only slightly, yes. It's it it, it looked. We're we talking like a, a badly drawn and marmoset or something like that. It's kind of like the Microsoft oh, you'll, Paint you'll, based you'll flag. See. Okay, it's it's not far off. It's yeah. honestly not far off. It does look somewhat MS Paint like, and yeah. Uh, also, for me, one of probably one of the worst uh, presidents, elected presidents that we've ever come across. As I'm well. excited. I'm really excited. Order for for one of my later sections, but yeah, I I mean we've we've come across some notorious politicians before, but this guy. Uh, somewhat takes the biscuit, in my, in my opinion. So he takes your biscuit. He has all the biscuits. Um, okay, so early history, Mark. Let's kick off with uh, some early history of, of of Suriname. Yes. Okay. So, just to again to uh, preface all of this with the fact that they didn't write things down, so that that is going to make my section quite a bit shorter than it would otherwise be. <laughs> That's typically um, typically how we start the early history we, we, section. We need we need that they didn't write lesson. things down, Claxon. Uh. <laughs> yeah, just the sound of scribbling. Um, but um, the general area is referred to as the Guianas. There's uh, you know, British Guiana, also known as now Guiana. There's French Guiana, which is still called French Guiana, and Suriname, which was Dutch Guiana. But uh, you know, as a grouping, as an area, it was generally seen as one kind of semi-homogeneous uh, geographical and cultural unit before the Europeans uh, came in. It's all uh, it's rivers, that- right? And this is kind of the the the, the sort of the shoulder of South America, mm. right? Sort of yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So away from Brazil, like, away from the Central America strip towards yeah. Panama, and yeah, top of Brazil. Uh, it's between the Orinoco and Amazon rivers. Uh, to w- the way to remember that is that Orinoco sounds like a, a fun, cool, fancy cocktail, and Amazon sounds like the chundering, gaping maw of capitalism, which will devour us all, turn our light to dark, and our joy to maggots. That's how I remember that. Uh, <laughs> and I and also only shared- one of them wow. is, an, is a song by Enya. 
<laughs> sail away, uh, sail away, sail um, <laughs> so uh, there's a lot we have to assume about Suriname's history because though some of the generalities of the area are probably true of Suriname also, uh, we don't necessarily know that mm-hmm. these things are specifically true of Suriname. So for example, we know that there were shellfish gatherers along the coast of this area, and so we can probably assume that there were shellfish gatherers in Suriname also. Um, there's also the presence of open savanna areas from the previous Ice Age, uh, and apparently that can only be explained, or most people think it can only be explained, by humans uh, burning trees and clearing uh, for grassland for savanna. Oh. So um, you would assume then that people were present for this, or, you know, man man or woman. Uh, savanna is not, is not sexist in this way. Um, classification of pre-Columbian groups in the Guianas is done according to their pottery, because as I say again, we don't know what they were speaking. We don't have their you know, recordings of their language. All right. So uh, the decoration of the pottery uh, remained unchanged over long periods of time and over large distances, suggesting, you know, cultural homogeneity within certain territories. Um, and a very and... underdeveloped fashion industry. <laughs> yes. You know, cycles um, are many centuries long. Um, so the earliest settlements in the area that we can, we can definitely say are in Suriname are in the kind of 2,000 to 3,000 years BC area. The best known uh, archaeological evidence of human habitation is the petroglyphs at Were Fai. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. So what they show are not really, you know, it's not pictures of people, you know, hunting or any of that kind of stuff. It's more iconography than, you know, interpretable images. But to describe them, you know, they're very beautiful, very intricate. But they looked like, to me, it's kind of standard Aztec-style imagery. I don't know if that suggests, you know, relation in terms of culture, but, uh, you know, long chains of kind of human heads mixed with kind of squarey, blocky lines and so on. That, that, that was kind of how I would interpret that, but I'd, I'd uh, suggest you look it up. Look it up, listeners. Uh, it's an it's a audio medium. I'm afraid I cannot perfectly describe this image. Um, oh, they're cool. So, yeah. Sorry, I've just looked them up. And now I've got testimony. So the area was most famously settled by the Arawak people. They were very dominant culturally in the area and had a common language, which is what defined them as a group. They spread out to some of the closest Caribbean islands as well, uh, as well as mainland South America. And I think, I don't know, but I think we can counter them in Panama. Is that right? Because I, that I feel does like sound familiar. Um, so there's evidence for regional trade networks, uh, indicators of a complex culture, um, evidence that they were modifying the soil by burning uh, vegetation to turn it into black earth, which even today is, is known for its agricultural productivity. Huh. Um, they also took human trophies and performed ritual <laughs> ritual cannibalism on war captives. I was wondering um, if we were going to have any, because I mean, my section said no cannibalism at all. So it's good to good to get that out of the way already. De- definitely that might be, so. That might be as, as quickly as we've gotten to can- cannibalism. And I think like, that's that it, be, right? You know, the earliest instance of cannibalism that we've 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 had so far. But yeah, I, I yeah, I don't think I've got any cannibalism cool. coming up. All right, so, nice. But we, we do have to feature it. I think we're con- contractually obliged at this yeah. point. To we are sponsored by cannibalism. Every episode, it is. It is our <laughs> our top. It's the top Patreon level. Is uh, it was taken over by cannibalism. So we we do have to mention yeah. every episode. I'm sorry about that. Go to cannibalism.com and enter the promo code eighty days for ten percent at checkout. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the promo code flesh. Uh, anyway, so who are they eating? They're eating the Caribs. Caribs, as in of the Caribbean. Uh, the Caribs have a long history in Suriname and are still nominally in the area in very tiny numbers. Mm. Uh, and again, they lacked a written form of language, so 
Who knows what they thought about things? Oh, they probably um, didn't like being eaten. They, <laughs> we assume. We assume. We assume too much. So the Caribs who are in Suriname currently refer to themselves as Kalina. That's their word for themselves. And it's also their native language. Um, and I think it's pretty fair to say that it's, it's kind of under threat. Uh, I think very, very, very definitely under threat. Although they are now starting to teach it in the local schools. So there is a possibility that it may be there in years to come. And they are trying to document it and preserve it. But as a, as a spoken language, it's, it's on the way out. Back to the Arawak, uh, they were the progenitors of several other groups that are still there in Suriname today, including the Taino people who live on the Suriname-Brazil border, and also who I believe were those who kind of turned Christopher Columbus's second voyage mm. into a bit stabbier, shootier kind of crazy Yeah, we definitely, we definitely mm. met the Taino in Cuba. In Cuba, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, and also uh, we have the Lakono who directly descend from the Arawak. Uh, the Lakono recently sued the Surinamese government in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, mm. as Suriname has never acknowledged their ancestral lands, so that's that's great, I guess. But uh, yeah, that that that's it in terms of uh, early history, in terms of uh, the, the native population. Oh, one other thing is, it's actually Suriname is named after a group who were there when Europeans turned up initially, but then very quickly it seems moved along in the 1500s. They were no, known as the Surinen, uh, but then moved further inland and to the other Guianas. So. The actual Suriname, the namesake, didn't really stay there that long. And the name is, is from a river, right? The Sur- yeah. Suriname River is the... I, I assume the river is named after the After group. the people and, and the, the, the area is named after yeah. the river. No? Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's people first and hmm. and probably then river and then country after the river after the people. Because Suriname wasn't actually yes. the official name yes. until independence. It was always yep. Dutch yeah, yeah, Guiana, absolutely. but it was always called Suriname. So presumably it's sort of the area around the Suriname River is what we're talking about. So moving on to Europeans, uh, the lads, the lads, lads on the go again, the good old Europeans. Oh, jeez. Europeans learned of Suriname through Christopher Columbus, that great guy who sighted its coast in 1498. Um, a Spanish expedition to the area was led by Emergo Vespucci and Alonso de Ojeda. Uh, sailing I think along that's the, coast the first of time we met the guy who... America is named after. Na- named America, yeah. Um, Ojeda was one of Columbia, uh, sorry, Columbus's boyos on his second voyage, uh, which, as I say, is one of the slavier, killier ones. Uh, and then this was followed then by the Spanish explorer Vicente Yanez Pinzon, uh, who visited the region in 1500. Uh, he of the Niña, Columbus's uh, uh, other ship. ship, the Niña, yeah. the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. He was the captain of, of he was one of the brothers Pinzon. I think they were the two captains. Columbus uh, was very much the Kevin Bacon of uh, Spanish exploration this period. Everybody had kind of like served with him in some, some, some small regard. Um, so there, there may have been some light ad hoc coastal exploration of Suriname in the following years, but generally it gets lumped. It's not really its own thing. It's just a bit of Guiana. So people kind of look at it and go, yeah, all right, well, whatever. And they move along. Uh, in 1593, that's now about 100 years later, um, we have Domingo de Vera. Uh, he had received an official royal charter to explore the area for El Dorado, the city of gold. Like of El Dorado was an actual thing they were looking for. It's not just like in in poorly written video games. Yeah, or, you know. Uh, I think it was tacky uh, what, Sir Walter Raleigh was the first one. Yes, I, I believe to to popularize it in in the in the Western mind at least. Well, in English certainly. Yeah, I mean his insistence that this city of gold existed it led to a lot of people being killed by 
uh, the 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 jungles of South America in search for this this mythical city of gold, which uh, it turned out you know never actually existed in the first place. Because of course it didn't. So because it didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. But 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 this is exactly yeah. true of Devere so. as well. So he he comes down. He has a wander around. Can't find it because it isn't there, as we know. And goes back and says, well, look, yep. I didn't find it. Of course, I didn't find it. No one's going to find it. It's very hard to find. It's Zelda What are you going to do? So, uh, but I do think it does definitely exist. And it exists in Venezuela uh, upriver. So that's where you need to go. So like every time they came back with, you know, empty handed, I think they had to justify why they went in the first place by saying, well, see where it really is. If you really want to find El Dorado, where you need to go is blah, 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 blah. Um, so eventually he gave up on El Dorado and just decided to flog rags and fags to the Brits, by which I mean cotton and tobacco, which was much easier uh, to get money from than finding a city that does not exist. Um, and that that's pretty much uh, pretty much it. At this point, you know, people have looked at it quite a bit and people are starting to think of colonializing, colonializing it quite a bit. Uh, I guess we should we should mention as well, um, like in the in the early 1600s, there have been a few small Dutch settlements, I guess. We, we, we I don't think there's any any point necessarily in, in talking about them extensively, but no, no. Uh, it, it's it's worth mentioning. I, I, I guess to to say that they did exist, but the first colonization of any of any real impact was by the British. Um, yeah, that's who I'm going to focus on here. Hello. So yeah. Hello. You in this there? section, I've, I've drawn. <laughs> Where are you from? Where are you from, mate? Where's Mate. the gold? Um, so in this section, I've drawn pretty heavily on a, a book. Uh, it's actually really the only extensive resource that I could find on this on this colony. It's called uh, Willoughby Land, England's Lost Colony by a guy called Matthew Parker. So yeah, this guy, uh, Parker, notes that no real serious exploration had taken place in the thousand mi- miles between the Amazon and uh, the Orinoco. Orinoco Rivers. Orinoco. Yeah, so no... Yeah, no serious explanation had taken place in the almost a thousand miles between those two rivers. And I'm going to quote directly from uh, Matthew Parker's book here. He says, uh, the Dutch referred to this area as the Wild Coast or the Wild Coast. And uh, early English explorers had labeled it as drowned land uh, and almost lost count of the number of rivers reaching the sea along its coast. And that's, you know, one thing that you'll notice if you look at a map of Suriname today. There's there's a lot of rivers. Mostly rivers. uh, In this this particular region. Mostly rivers. One reported 14, another reported 40. In fact, there are hundreds carrying huge charts of water out of the jungle where up to three meters of rain falls every year. Uh, The largest... Yeah. Um, Although dwarfed by their giant neighbors, the uh, Orinoco and Amazon, by European standards, these rivers are still vast. The mouth of the Essequibo River is almost as wide as the English Channel. That's one of the smaller rivers in Suriname. Yeah, it's almost as wide as the Channel. Yeah. He continues, behind the muddy mangrove-choked shoreline lay deep swamps and then thick forests of astounding vigor, uh, size, and strangeness. The French, when they came, called the Guiana intri- uh, interior Green Hell. Far <laughs> inland rise. Amazing. Uh, ancient flat-top peaks. Uh, as the great rivers tumble off this high plateau, they create a massive, spectacular waterfalls. That so sounds that insane. A, yeah, it does sound like a, a, a pretty crazy place. And I'm also starting um, to understand why the Dutch would end up here. But uh, I'll, I'll revisit that. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm. Um, so in the early 1650s, uh, England was on its knees, and around 80,000 men had died in the civil war as Parliament uh, overcame the, the the crown. 
and over a hundred uh, or another hundred thousand civilians were killed uh, during this conflict, and that's at the time when England's population was only around one and a half million. That's a pretty significant, uh, you know, segment of your of your population. That's so this is this is Oliver Cromwell, right? Four years. Yeah, roundheads and cavaliers. Mm, yeah, yeah. So Cromwell, so Cromwell's in charge now. They execute the king, and it becomes a kind of a military dictatorship, republicy thing, for a while. Yep. That's about it. Uh, so at the same time, taxes increased by around seven times between 1630 and 1650. And also this period was called uh, or was the, the kind of the one of the coldest points of uh, what's called the mini ice age, which I actually oh. hadn't heard about before. Uh, but is a is a point in history between the 15th and, and uh, middle of the 19th century. Oh. Yeah. And apparently every year the Thames uh, would would freeze over because yeah. temperatures would, would be would get so low in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I hadn't heard about this, but I guess that kind of sets a stage where you're kind of looking at, you know, if you're if you're a farmhand or a, a peasant living in in London at this time, you're kind of mm. looking at like you know, moving somewhere else. Us. maybe trying to get out of out of oh, right. uh, yes, yeah, maybe trying to get out of London. And into this story steps our principal character for this section, one Francis Willoughby, fifth Baron Willoughby of Parham, who apparently has a you know I was looking up some some photos of this guy uh, beforehand, and he has a very impressive ginger mustache. Um, Francis Willoughby was originally a supporter of Parliament in the English Civil War, and then he joined the Royalist side in 1648 and was appointed uh, governor. Yeah, he's he's, not great. Uh, He was appointed governor of Barbados by Charles II in 1650. Okay. And while there, he was very much aware of tensions that were simmering between Royalists and Parliamentarians. Uh, both of whom lived in the colony. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, he therefore uh, decides to set up his own safety net and sets up a, a kind of an offshoot colony from uh, Barbados oh. and sends a ship uh, accompanied by two smaller vessels under the uh, command of a guy called Major Anthony Rouse to Suriname. Wait, when you said uh, safety net, actually... Luke, I thought it was going to be an actual net around his house. I'm setting up a safety <laughs> net around my house. <laughs> constitutional yeah. crises can't touch me <laughs> yeah yeah unless they're very small so actually, or like diamond shaped and get right through the hole yeah the... so that actually turned out to be a very smart move on his behalf because uh the crown ended up losing out to uh parliamentary forces very shortly after he was appointed governor Off uh, his so head. He was on the losing side yeah and parliamentary forces very shortly thereafter showed up in a boat uh our barbados <laughs> and uh willoughby was left kind of you know, I mean, by the sounds of sounds of it, he he kind of negotiated a a decent settlement with the parliamentarians, where they were like, "You can go and 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 kind of uh, you know administer your new colony, but we're going to take Barbados and we'll allow you to leave with your head, but um, yeah, you're 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 getting kicked out of here." So um, yeah, after sinking a significant amount of his own money into this colony, he he names it Willoughby Land because Amazing. you know who who doesn't want to name their colony after themselves. He described it as the sweetest place that was ever seen. Delicate rivers, brave land, and fine timber. That, those are the words of, of uh, Willoughby. And that he sounds also like the earlier description. Uh, yeah, it does, sounds like he's lying. Oh, yeah, it definitely jars with the earlier descriptions. Yeah. Green um, hell. Yeah. But that's how marketing works, right? <laughs> uh, he also, and I, I think this is kind of ominous, Matthew Parker in his book says that... Um, Willoughby claimed that his advance party in Suriname had stayed for five months without anybody suffering so much as a headache. Uh, but that's, again, he claimed... They all died that. immediately. I don't know how true that actually is. 
yeah, and then of course, as we talked about earlier, the the temptation of El Dorado being somewhere in this region helped him to attract oh, settlers geez. to this colony. Dummies. Yeah. So another quote from Matthew Parker's book: For the farmhand slaving in the freezing rain of a Lincolnshire field, or the small-time tradesman shivering in a garret room in a desolated town, there was an intoxicating fresh possibility. England had a new colony far away in a place of eternal spring, as one report read, where the blissfully warm air was fragrant with the scents of oranges, lemons, figs and nutmeg, and noble aromatics. The soil was luxuriant, producing trees of all types in vivid colours which appeared like nosegays adorned with the flowers of different kinds. This rich land teemed with strange rarities, both of beast, fish, reptile, insects and vegetables. Living here, it was reported, were primitive peoples happy to make their happy to trade their plentiful gold, silver, and pearls for trifles. How wonderful! Oh, God. For a good quality knife, you could have ten times its value in tobacco or cotton, raw or woven into hammocks. Even better, they were extremely welcoming and friendly to the English, whose oh. coming they believed was a fulfillment of a prophecy to rid them of Spanish oppression. Oh. Diseases oh, so rich and healthy was this region that locals lived for up to one hundred and twenty years old. And <laughs> what's more, there were. What's more, their women were the most beautiful in the world, as well oh, as lavicious and all nakedly exposed to every wanton eye. Oh, ah, come on, so guys. that's. Uh, I mean, if that's what the brochure reads, then it's, it's a charter you know, for sign me up. For are, are you laboring yes. in a in a in a in a horrible Lincolnshire field? Would you like to come to a place yeah. where you can extort indigenous people and perv on their daughters? Can, can, you, yep. can you imagine the intimate hygiene of a Lincolnshire farmer in this period? No, like, no, no yeah. one wants that. Oh. No one wants that waggled at yeah. them. Good Lord. So, yeah, I mean, against the odds, the colony did begin to grow pretty rapidly. Uh, settlements were established on both banks of the Suriname River and numbers grew from around 600 in 1654 to around 4,000 just eight years later. Wow. Uh, and this was this growth was mostly under the, under the stewardship of Willoughby's uh, right-hand man, Major Rouse, who I mentioned earlier. Administrators weren't uh, discriminating when it came to accepting new settlers. So, you know, this is this kind of is at the root of what we talked about earlier, but the, the ethnic... Uh, melting pot thing. You know, ethnic and, and melting pot. Yeah, the whole melting pot philosophy. Willoughby was was very welcoming and had told his administrators to be very welcoming of people from different backgrounds and religions. Um, so there were political radicalists, uh, royalists, Jews, people from all over the world uh, came to settle here. Well, and, was there not an element um, of, of beggars can't be choosers with this guy? Because like he was kind of on the outs with with uh, the whole. I homeland. would imagine so that's he kind also of needed true to too. Like, get yeah. everybody he could. Yeah. So in 1664, Willoughby Land was declared the most hopeful colony in the empire. And, you know, but that that sort of, again, betrayed the, some of the realities of living in Suriname. I mean, there were there were obviously tropical diseases. Uh, syphilis apparently was rampant in Willoughby Land. Uh, but how did anyone were... catch it? <laughs> All those Lincolnshire farmers, <laughs> Joe. They're not just bringing goat's milk. No, they're not. And there were natural hazards such as what the English called tigers, which is what we, we would today call jaguars. Oh, wow. And uh, what, they, what they deemed numb eels. Which were um, like electric uh, eels. I think electric eels, yes. Wow. Which would uh, pretty semi frequently injure or, or kill settlers yeah, you know, as they okay. waded into the, the many rivers. Yeah. However, for the plantation owners, the bounties on offer outweighed the risks. Like, like Suriname, it turned out, or Willoughby Land produced uh, the finest sugar that money could buy, and it also exported dyes, tobacco, mm-hmm. honey, wax, and cotton. 
So there's a lot of money to be made here for a, a, a entrepreneurial plantation owner. Up until 1663, much of the workforce was English, and were you know the ranks were filled out with uh, Amerindians. Mm. Uh, which we'll, we'll we'll probably talk about a little bit later, but these are the native peoples in the area, and they were at the time called beavers for some reason by the oh, English. I, could, I couldn't find out why they called them beavers, but probably because they were yeah, damming I mean, the rivers and so on. Maybe, maybe. yeah, that might have been. However, in that same year, sixteen sixty-three, the crown um, sanctioned slavery, and by sixteen sixty-seven. Just a few years later, there were as many slaves uh, in this colony as settlers. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, where we get into the, the, the dark days of slavery. Uh, just a note that Willoughby did survive the Cromwell years. He, he seems to be a, have, a, have been a fairly lucky guy. And after the restoration, he was again point, appointed to governor, different governorships in the Caribbean. So he administered different colonies at St. Kitts, Montserrat and Antigua. And I believe he did end up in Barbados. As he well. did, yeah. But would would later be poisoned by a political rival over a disputed inheritance. Of course. So that's where he ended up. Right. Um, yeah, we should also point out actually that, like I like I touched on briefly, that this is um, this time was kind of the the origin of some of the ethnic groups that ended up in Suriname, and and Jews were one of the. There was a, a Jewish community that was set up at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, between you know there were a few groups. Of them that uh, arrived between 1640 and 1665, they were fleeing persecution in the Netherlands and in Portugal and in Spain. The and Inquisition in Brazil being uh, current well. at the time. Mm. Yes. So they set up a, a few plantations around Suriname and the biggest one was... Joden Savannah, it was called. Joden Savannah, there you go, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the Jewish Savannah. I, I, I get the impression it did thrive for a while, but then mm, was uh, destroyed yeah. by a slave revolt in 1832. Mm. And but, was set on fire by by revolting slaves, and then later served as a uh, camp for political prisoners in in World War Two. Which I don't know if you will mention that in your section. No, I didn't have that. But yeah, they they, they were a really important part of the um, community for a couple of hundred years. And nowadays, there's not that many Jews left. But and mostly yeah. in the capital, I think less than 02 percent of the population mm. now is Jewish. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's that, a handful. This, they but there was this this group led by David Cohen Nassi. Uh, I think mm. fleeing French Guyana or they came from Europe and they weren't let into French Guyana so they came yeah. to they came to uh, Willoughby Land Willoughby Land they they mm-hmm. they set up this this quite successful plantation um, you know and they made a lot of money and they had a lot of slaves and they were doing well by the merits of the time uh, and were significant yeah. players in, in a small colony Exactly. Hey. So at this at this stage we've got we've got uh we've got Amerindians, we've got white people, we've got African slaves, yep. and we've got Jews. Some Dutch. Some and Dutch some and Dutch. some English, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah, uh let's take a quick break. Yeah. yeah. We seem to keep mentioning this episode how the people of Suriname have very diverse origins coming from four different continents around the world. In that way, they're not so unlike our Patreon supporters, who at at the moment, only six months after launching on Patreon, span three continents of the world. We'd love to get up to the full five and maybe even summon in Antarctica eventually, but we're very grateful for all those people who have signed up to help support us in this project and to keep making it the kind of podcast you want to listen to. 
Those of you who are already patrons have voted on our season finale recently, and I hope you're looking forward to hearing the results of that winner. We're really grateful for all the support our patrons give us and the input, and we'd love for more people to join their ranks. So if you're in a position to support us financially, go over to patreon.com slash 80 days podcast and sign up. And if you're not, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or Facebook, and you'll hear all of the links at the end of the show. Thanks very much to our patrons, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So, uh, all things were to change in, in the colony, um, with a changing of, of which, which country was in charge. So, the after the restoration of the British king, who had been in exile in The Hague in the Netherlands for much of the reign of Oliver Cromwell, uh, Charles II comes back to England. His um, younger brother, James the Duke of York, we encountered in The Gambia. He was very involved in the slave trade in the, the Royal African Company. And so he quite heavily pushed for conflict with the United Provinces of the Netherlands okay. because they were controlling a lot of the slave trade out of West Africa and England wanted a slice. Uh, so the, the Second Anglo-Dutch War was all about free trade on the high seas, basically controlling access to all these new colonies that were popping up all over the world. And the Dutch and the English were kind of fighting over who would control the seas. This war went on for a few years, mostly in, in the North Sea and in and around England and the Netherlands. But okay. in 1665, the war moved to the Caribbean, when the British took the Dutch island of Sint Eustatius. Sint Eustatius. <laughs> you mean St. Lucius? No, St. Eustace, I think. St. Eustace? It's, so it's, it's still part of the Netherlands today, Sint Eustatius. It's a Eustatius. small island in the sort of general Suriname region. All right. The French teamed up with the Dutch and they, they conquered St. Kitts and Antigua, Montserrat. So there's a lot, lot going on over there. Okay. And into the fray steps a, a Zealander admiral called Abraham Kreinsen. So he Sounds nice. Sounds comes fun. with a fleet to save the day. He uh, reconquers St. Eustatius and then Eustatius. sets his sights on, um, on Willoughby Land. <laughs> As a, as a jewel of the Caribbean that he wants to, uh, to seize, uh, as part of this war, the twenty eighth of February, sixteen sixty seven, he leads a small fleet with three hundred soldiers on board, up the river, um, to Fort Willoughby, uh, which was the stronghold, with the, on the site of the current capital, Paramaribo. It was mm-hmm. defended by William Byam because Lord Willoughby was, not there; he was off, doing his thing. In absentia. Getting in absentia. Barbados or something? Yeah, he was governing. I think at yep. this stage Barbados again. And the Dutch claimed to have lost only a single soldier in attacking the fort. And Bayam ended up surrendering the fort to Kreinsen. So Kreinsen finds himself with a new colony for Zealand and the Netherlands. Which we don't see very often. I mean I mean, you know, a lot I feel like a lot of our our previous episodes we've seen we've seen the British take you know, colonies from the French and from the Dutch and mm-hmm. from different yeah. colonial powers. You don't you don't typically Portugal. see the Dutch kind of taking and holding too many of the, the places that we've talked about. No, yeah. and, and they had very recently lost at the corner of Brazil that had been a colony that they were quite enthusiastic okay. about. Um, so the Dutch were 
yeah, the, the habit is more often to lose colonies and gain them, unfortunately for them. Yeah. But Crinson did some clever politicking. He basically made deals with all the English planters, and there were Dutch planters too. Like there was, as you say, people from all different nations had come here. And he sort yeah. of made deals with all of them that their situation would remain unchanged. They could continue doing their thing, provided they swore an oath to be loyal to the Dutch lords. So yeah, Crankton's a hell of a guy. Hell of, hell of mm-hmm. a guy. Uh, and so the only real change was mm-hmm. like English soldiers were arrested and sent off to camps or back to England or whatever. Um, so pretty successful transition of power. Wasn't necessarily to last. In October of the same year, a new English fleet under John Hermans attacked with seven warships and twelve hundred men. So okay. This is four, four times what had initially conquered the um, the fort. Despite a robust defence by Commander de Ram, who had been left in charge, and his French allies, they were um, pretty easily beaten uh, and sent as prisoners to Lord Willoughby, who was in Barbados at this time. Eating a big bowl of poison. Okay. Uh, not yet. This is pre-poison, <laughs> Willoughby. Uh, so the, the, the English had regained their losses, but it was too late. Because soon afterwards, news arrived of the Treaty of Breda. So a treaty had been signed a few months earlier back in Europe. And it had basically fixed the territorial expansions of each of the, the English and the Dutch at where they had been on July 31st. So okay. the reconquest was was rolled back. Control Z, um, right? So just wind wind back time a bit and just yeah. kind of go back to your original positions. Is that okay? All right. Exactly. Interesting. And um, basically, the the uh, the major results there were lots of little bits and pieces traded back and forth, but the major results were that the Dutch got to keep this central Guyana, which would become Dutch Guyana and Suriname. And the uh, they were happy enough to give up the New Netherland province in North America to the English, who had mm. colonised much of the rest of North America. King Charles sent his brother James to take control of, of this, uh, James, Duke of York. Mm. And uh, they renamed New Netherlands and the port of New Amsterdam after its new benefactor, and it became New York, which I'm sure many of our listeners have, have heard of, but we might have to do an episode yeah. on this Island, often overlooked... You know. uh, off New York State, you might you might have heard of. Yeah. Um, obviously, in light of uh, later developments, it might I have been a bad trade. Seen as a spectacularly bad trade uh, well, on behalf the, of the there, Dutch. There's a description on, on on Wikipedia of sort of a. It might you know how nowadays it might seem odd, but in the 17th century, tropical colonies producing agricultural products, which could not be grown in Europe, were deemed more valuable than oh, ones yeah. with a climate similar to Europe. Yeah, uh, where mm-hmm. Europeans could settle in comfort, and that, that's that was a fair analysis at the time. I mean, would the United yeah. States have become like the United sugar States here without and tobacco? Being, and if it hadn't all yeah. been English, would yeah. it even have become a single country? Mm-hmm. And yeah. would it have achieved the economic success it achieved? Who knows? Mm-hmm. So, L- uh, larger question: We're 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 still stuck on we're still stuck on Suriname. Um, <laughs> There was a little bit of stuff that happened in, in, in Suriname where, like, Willoughby got his he got his uh, orders to to sort of cease and desist, but he still was very petty about losing his, his kind of pet province. So I mean, he started it, basically, he did. right, didn't he? I mean, he it was kind of, you know, pretty much his, his pet project, as you say, so... Well, I mean, there had been Arawaks and Caribs there uh, before. Sure. They, they basically the, the fled into the forest. I mean, was... 
at this point. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't think we mentioned, but like that was kind of the strategy, the Amerindian strategy to colonization was just go upriver, you know, live your life unmolested upriver in, in, in the rainforest. The white people aren't coming up here, they'll die. Yeah, it becomes a pattern that we'll see time and again mm-hmm. is that like people who want to escape from the plantations and, and colonies along the coast just flee south into the, the, the rainforest. Yeah. And essentially just disappear. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think we'll, we'll see a few instances of that before this show is over. But um... <laughs> Disappear and probably die of malaria. <laughs> no, no, they do fine. Uh, no, uh, a lot of them thrive, actually. Yeah, yeah. Right. surprisingly. The key but... was getting away from the white people. That was the... Uh... Uh, yes, yeah. I, I could see You can deal with the, the, the tigers and the stun eels if you can, <laughs> you know. I'd rather deal with those than the, with, the, with the white people, I guess. That's, that was their strategy. He's a tiger zone of guns and smallpox. Yeah. Um, they did after the white people got to them. Syphilis <laughs> too. <laughs> so, yeah, Willoughby sent his son Henry with some warships to sort of kind of, uh, if I can't have it, you can't have it, um, would be the attitude. So he's yeah. like, yes, we'll leave the fort to the Dutch after burning it down. Right. Or you guys you know, can rule over the ashes. Yeah, exactly. We'll leave all the plantations here, but we'll burn all the mills for turning the sugar into into like grinding all the sugar cane into sugar or whatever. Nice. And they also tried very hard to get um all the English colonists to come with them to British Guyana. Uh taking all their stuff all right. and their slaves with them. The Dutch kind of wrote to the King of England and said this isn't cool. We had a treaty, dude. Um, right. You can't just sure like the language that they used. They're bringing yeah. 1992. These guys. You can't just <laughs> bring all of the all of the valuable stuff with you. That's not fair. Where's my so, colony, dude? <laughs> eventually, it's decided that people could leave of their own free will, but they weren't to be sort of forced by you know Lord Willoughby's warships. And uh, in the end, 1,200 English, including several Jews who had come from England with uh, Willoughby, left Suriname. <laughs> with their slaves and their goods and went to Jamaica where they were received with joy according to uh, to a book I found on the Dutch National Library's web, web page. So, in 1674, uh, the Treaty of Westminster cements Dutch sovereignty, makes it an official colony. But it was very damaged because a lot of the entrepreneurial slaveholders making all the money from, you know, owning people and turning the ownership of people into cotton uh they they left uh in tropical or in, in sort of these these sort of jungle environments the land if it's not if it's not farmed very quickly turns back into jungle so basically the the the, the abandonment of these plantations costs this new colony a lot uh, and Cryinson okay. was sent to govern a group of largely english leftovers who who hadn't gone away but weren't particularly friendly to the new government either there was about a decade of wrangling between between the the government of, of the province of Zeeland and the national government of the united provinces of the netherlands so Zeeland being one of the provinces holland and Zeeland and uh, a few other um a few other provinces made up this country and right Zeeland reckoned that they should get to control it because kreinsen was their admiral but the Dutch more generally felt that they'd all funded the army, so they should all get a slice of the pie. And this led to a lot of indecision. Um, and eventually, the solution was that the Dutch West Indian Company was 
patented and given authority to run the colony in Suriname. Uh, the, the the this was the, the company that was basically West Indian Company. Yeah, it's not it's not the it's not the VOC, it's not the not the East India Company, but it it uh, yeah. it ran the Dutch uh, transatlantic slave trade. Basically, they would run the forts okay. in Guyana or in in Guinea and in modern day Ghana and um, sell or buy, buy or steal people, bring them over to uh, Curacao, which was the biggest trading post in. In the Caribbean for the Dutch, they would sell mm-hmm. slaves there. Uh, I think two and a half thousand a year were, were what was the target for Suriname. And then they would take the cotton and the sugar and the indigo and would bring that back to the Netherlands and sell it in Amsterdam and then go back to Africa and continue this triangle ad infinitum. Triangle of misery right. and profit. Mm-hmm. So as as I've said, slavery was a was a key component of Dutch colonization of the Guyanas, like plantation work. You would not find a willing willing laborers to do this work. It was horrible, backbreaking, endless horrible slave owners. Yeah, yeah. And so slavery was the the only way to make a sugar plantation or a, a tobacco plantation profitable. Um, right. Interestingly, they weren't for some reason in in in, in Suriname. They didn't try to convert the slaves to Christianity for a long time. And so you got a lot of uh, maintenance of, of kind of African spirituality uh, in some form of kind of syncretic religions. Winty? Are we talking about Winty uh, here? Winty is, is a sort of modern version of, of a modern descended version of this. But yeah, okay. they kept a lot of their um, traditions and, and gods and stuff from, from Africa as part of their daily lives, sometimes mashing it up with Christianity as well. Um, but there was a definite belief in a, a creator God, but a feeling that he wasn't really involved in the in day-to-day life. Uh, and that other minor gods were more useful for um, for your day-to-day problems. I mean, because the creator was too busy. If you're under, under, the, if you're under the stewardship of, of one of these, you know, terrible um, yeah. overseers. Yeah. And, what yeah, else you got? Thinking that God is not involved in your day-to-day affairs is, is probably, a reasonable conclusion. You know, probably makes sense. And yeah. just just one example that stood out to me of the kind of horror of the slave trade was 1738, the Dutch slave ship the Leusden, under Captain Joachim Utjes, uh, it sank off the Surinamese coast, and that that itself isn't such a tragedy, but they locked all of the slaves, 680 slaves, uh, oh, below Jesus. deck. As it sank, and six hundred and sixty-four people died from from that group. Wow! Uh, okay, in the sinking of the ship, they so, drowned six hundred and sixty-four. Rather slaves. than open the hatches yep. and allow them to try to swim to shore, or because something. they were worried they might, you know, escape or have an uprising if they were. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of the the level of inhumanity we're we're talking about. Uh, anyway, uh, brighter note. So just accepting that slavery is horrible and there. Uh, we, we, we should get into the development of the colony. Um, in 1683, the Society of Suriname took over. So this is a new company. It was part owned by the West Indian Company, but also by the city of Amsterdam. And uh, importantly, by a very, very rich man called Cornelis van Arsen van Sommelsdijk, who uh, is rich enough to have two surnames. <laughs> yeah. He's two vans. Van- 
That's yeah, found two places. Yeah. Very often. That's how he described himself yeah. to the ladies as well. A real mouthful. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. That's really gross. So he was from a long-standing political family. Um, and just kind of lost interest in Dutch politics and decided he wanted to go off and it, it happens to the best of us Joe we, yeah. we we're we're struggling along and then we just lose interest in Dutch politics for a few maybe a few, you few, know few maybe seconds. he read uh, maybe he read Willoughby's uh, brochure maybe, you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. uh, he'd been a, a childhood playmate of Crown Prince William III so that was uh, meant he had a lot of influence and he sort of set to it I, I mentioned earlier that like the Dutch seem like the appropriate people to colonize a really, really, really wet country. Sure. Because that's yeah, their yeah. thing. That they have a really wet country. Yeah. Yeah. So they built polders and canals and all this stuff and made the colony sort of work under this guy, um, Samuel Stike. He, he managed to um, r- kind of repel the, the attacks by the, the indigenous people. He brought in lots of new, good Protestant uh, settlers. He was very very keenly Protestant and so he he imported lots of French Protestants and, and Germans to populate the place because the Dutch didn't seem overly keen on coming but he was very stern one, one, one report I read described him as a, an enemy of all brutality fornication and indecision well I'm a, fa- which... I'm a fan of two out of three of those <laughs> um, so he developed a lot of enemies he forces soldiers to carry rocks around to build Paramaribo and he cut their rations because he wasn't getting enough money from home. And so after five years of governor, he was murdered by 11 of his soldiers being shot in broad daylight. Okay. So wow. He did a lot to build up the colony and was then very, very much murdered. Shot in the nards. Uh, and so the French started sniffing around. 1712, France and the Netherlands are at war, which led to a pirate called Jacques Cassard committing an event that had an, an, an unexpectedly large impact. Like, he basically just raided the country looking for a ransom, looking for get, looking to be paid off, um, which yeah, doesn't sound... Typical pirate. Yeah, it doesn't sound that big a deal, uh, but he was very good at it uh, because there was such instability in the colony. He rampaged through it, destroyed lots of um, plantations, and importantly, thousands of people escaped slavery during the chaos. Like thousands just walked off the plantations. Uh, Sometimes they'd be sent into the woods to escort the women and children to safety. And then they'd just be like, keep going. I'm off. Yeah. (laughs) Bye. Bye, madam. Uh, Good luck. (laughs) And this is where... You look pretty safe to me. I'm all the best. This is where a group known in Dutch as the Weglopers, uh, which is a great word, kind of road goers or, or away runners... They fled into the rainforest and formed tribes, uh, kind of integrating into the Amerindian culture that prevailed in the interior of the country, but bringing sort of an African flavour to it. Uh, They formed these tribal groups um, called Maroons. So we encountered Maroons in Panama uh, once upon a time. This is a similar situation, but they were very successful because we're talking about huge amounts of slaves escaping and just setting up their own society. So this is the start of another one of the ethnic groups that we were talking about, I guess, at the the top of the The, episode. This is is where the Maroons come from, is all these slaves who fled into the rainforest, right? Yeah, and did their own thing um, and developed their religions like Winti and and others. And some of the groups here are the Nyuka, 
the Boney and the Saramakan are some of the major tribes that there, there there are many. I think there's about nine or ten significant tribes, but those are some of the big ones. And yeah, that kind of starts their progress in a different direction to their enslaved brothers and sisters. Uh, on economics, coffee um, was brought to the colony in, in the 1720s and became basically the most profitable thing. Uh, after the first shipment was delivered to Amsterdam, they couldn't get enough of it. So uh, it, it displaced the sugar and and cotton and a lot of plantations changed direction. And a lot of German and Swiss planters were brought in to settle upriver as a buffer against Maroon attacks because the Maroons, they kept, they weren't kind of gone quietly into the forest never to be heard of again. They kept, any time they wanted something, they'd just come to a plantation and take it, liberating any slaves they could find as they went. So this caused chaos to the slave economy and the plantation economy in a way that's quite satisfying, I, I find. And it got to a point where in the, the mid-1700s, they had to make a deal. The, the the colonists just had to had to negotiate with the Maroons. Uh, so under under Governor Johan Jacob Maricius or Mauritius, they basically wanted to show their military superiority, scare the Maroons into thinking they could be defeated, and then offer a deal. And it was messy a few times. They were close to a deal, and then someone would attack someone else, and it would all fall apart. But in the end, uh, at a place called Auka, uh, in, I think, 1760, a treaty was signed between Major Mayer on behalf of the colonial government and a couple of uh, captains of the various Maroon tribes, or the Maroon, um, yeah, tribes. And this basically meant that they would get territorial autonomy. Uh the 10th of October is still celebrated among Surinamese Maroons as kind of a sort of an Independence Day. And they would be given basically a payoff every year not to attack the plantations. They'd be paid off in food and sugar and, and money. Uh, and the only condition was that they were basically meant to return any escaped slaves who came to them, which I think they weren't particularly good at doing, it turns out. All right. Uh, yeah. Even though they themselves were, like, the descendants yeah, of escaped slaves. Yeah, but I mean, slaves. in some cases, they were second or third generation escaped slaves at this right. stage. You know, so it was less... They were yeah. now just a tribe, you know. Um, right. I also quite liked the account of the oath-taking, so that the Maroons weren't satisfied with the Christian oaths, that the, you know, the guys were putting their hands on Bibles and saying, I swear I'll uphold this. And they went, hmm... Uh, They'd seen it broken so many times, they weren't particularly um, convinced. And so they decided to take a a maroon-style oath, which meant everyone involved in signing the treaty would uh, drop some blood into a a calabash filled with pure spring water. Uh, A little bit of dry earth was mixed in, and then everyone had to drink from it, having poured a few drops on the ground beforehand. And then their priest pronounced a curse on anyone who would break the covenant, to which the people answered, Daso which is Creole for, uh, you know, amen or let it be so. So I think that's um, pretty hardcore oath. Uh, feels, a, feels a bit more binding than just, you, you know, writing your, your yeah. you know, your scroll on a, on a piece of paper. Exactly. And they didn't have to worry about HIV back then. All right. So we'll take a quick break actually now and then uh, we'll come back into the early 19th century. Oh, 
So in 1807, uh, the British abolished the slave trade, which is essential Ooh. to uh, Suriname's established uh, economy, as we've as we've already mentioned. Uh, in 1814, uh, then the Netherlands decides to get out of the slave trade too. Uh, I mean, you know, in a, in a you know helpful PR move, I guess, which uh, cripples the the Dutch plantations around the world, many of which became bankrupt. Suriname. I think, like we've already talked about, was one of uh, many Dutch colonies in this region, in the uh, Guyanas. And it's around this time that uh, the British consolidated a lot of their uh, a lot of their colonies into British Guyana in 1831. And in 1838, then, uh, most British colonies had abolished slavery. Uh, but unfortunately, in Suriname, it, I mean, the abolition of slavery became or came much later and mm-hmm. only actually ended in 1873. But... It was clear that the end of slavery was coming, you know. I mean, yeah, it trends. sounds like they were, they were just kind of resisting as, as for yeah. as long as as was really possible mm-hmm. um, after, you know, the 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 crown had 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 kind of gotten out of the whole thing. But yeah, yeah but I mean, again, it's... always important to point out the difference between abolishing the slave trade and abolishing slavery. So yes, the British yeah. abolished mm-hmm. the trade long before they yeah. abolished the slaves. You know, mm-hmm. owning people wasn't illegal, just transporting them just was. trading them yeah. yeah um so it's it, it helps but it's not the end of the story but like this idea that, that slavery free, free labor was was coming to an end meant some innovative solutions had to come into play which is a big part of uh, Suriname's ethnic diversity today was these innovative solutions so the first attempt was to um basically get more poor white people uh so in 1845, there's a, a group called the Boeros come into play, which are, you might recognize that word Boer as being the Dutch yeah. for farmer from South, South African history. Yeah, um, yeah, the Boer Wars, yeah. So it's the same kind of idea that like poor farmers from, from the Gelderlands or from Utrecht and Groningen, they were uh, enticed to move to the colony uh, and set up small farms and sort of keep everything running uh, and they were promised housing cattle tools uh, drinking water drained land you know all the good stuff uh, and they found none of these things when they got there yeah uh, also a lack of uh, they were settled in a, a former leper colony and a lot of them died of typhus oh god uh, right. is that is that ironic is that i don't know go to a leper colony <laughs> die of typhus you'd think you'd die of leprosy wouldn't you Alanis Morissette, ironic. It's just bad. (laughs) Take a plane. Some guy punches you. Eat some ice cream. You get stabbed in the gut. Ironic. Anyway. (laughs) So that was a bit of a disaster. And the scheme was abandoned by 1853. So about a decade later, having sent maybe 600 people out there. A lot of whom then went back to the Netherlands. So that was attempt one to bring cheap labor to Suriname 
1858, attempt two to uh, bring about cheap labour was um, the recruitment of 500 Chinese labourers in Macau by sort of Dutch officials out in Indonesia. And um, yes, yeah, so they, they, they arrived in Paramaribo and no one really wanted to hire them because they still had slavery. Well, so. th- th- there was another aspect to that as well. Uh, fir- firstly, actually, the first batch of Chinese came over in 1853, uh, 14 Chinese from yes, Java. Yes, right. um, But not all, that, that's a smaller number than set out. Um, several died on the voyage, which is great. Uh, and in 1858, part of the issue was also that the Chinese were sold on a contract of uh, five years of work with an included return ticket, free meals, monthly wages, and two sets of clothes per year. Um, but... The hires didn't really like this offer, didn't really take it up. As you yep. say, like there was a pretty competitive market still at the time. So the deal got revised to the following. Half pay, no food, no accommodation, payment was per job, and was based on the quality of the work done rather than a flat rate. Uh, mm. And they got to kick one worker in the balls once a month. Uh, I think... I think I think all of those details are right. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but the, the Chinese didn't know about those changes until they arrived. The uh, contracts are basically changed without the knowledge of the people who travelled to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so they, they arrived uh, and the, their, the, the premise on which they were going had changed entirely. Uh, by 1874, uh, the, 1874 was, I think, the last batch of Chinese workers to come over. But by then, yeah. 2,500 Chinese mm-hmm. had been brought to Suriname. Yeah, and it made a bit more sense then because, because as we'll see, slavery have been abolished in the interim. So I think that the terms got better as slavery became no longer an option. And became more more established as well. More established. And it was an indentured servitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So not slavery, but not much We're better. slaves away. So who are the cheapest people we can hire? Yeah. You know. um, just and treat like slaves for a fixed period of time. On, yeah. on the Chinese, uh, on the legacy of, of mm. this... Um, there would always be a small but significant Chinese influence in Suriname. Uh, I saw in some of the videos, uh, we'll talk, talk about them later on, but of, of royal Dutch visits to Suriname, you see uh, Chinese dragon dances in some oh, cool. of the more kind of rural towns upriver. Uh, and even today, actually, there, the Chinese Surinamese connection is getting stronger and stronger. The world has actually gone full circle. Um, oh, you're right. Yes. In, now, now people are immigrating again from China. Exactly. So, because China is expanding. And, and China's kind of gaining more and more influence in mm-hmm. Suriname. I've got this great quote here uh, from a, a great Guardian article I found. Uh, in less than 10 years, the Chinese have set up hundreds of companies, shops, casinos, restaurants in this small South American state. Uh, they have widened and asphalted roads, built social housing, a television channel with a staff of about 20 now broadcasts in Mandarin Chinese on Suriname networks. Mm-hmm. They call us saltwater wow. Chinese. Unlike the others who arrived in the 19th century and have settled on farms further inland, closer to the freshwater rivers. And I did find one, uh, the term is, uh, it's not, not a great term, but it's Chinglish, uh, as in Chinese English, uh, a great sign in Suriname, which says, could not connect to translator service. Uh, it's, it's on a, um, uh, I believe, a, a hairdresser's, uh, just as in large letters, could not connect to translator service. Uh, anyway. Then in 1863, slavery was abolished. Way. I, I hear you cheer, but you would be wrong to, I, I because there was a 10-year transition period before Ooh. people were released from bondage. Ooh, it's complicated. Ooh. So it's like, slavery is over, but you have to work for 10 years. But not for you, you, and you, and you, and you. Yeah. Uh, the Netherlands was the last European nation to ban slavery, and they're so liberal now. Um, mm. 
Come full circle. Uh, in 1865, Suriname was given a degree of direct rule with a colonial rad, which is like a council, set up to co-rule with the appointed governor-general. In 1873, the afro surinamese finally achieved freedom. Um, some went off to join the, Mar- the Maroons in the, in the interior, and some moved to the cities and became a new majority of, of citizens called <coughs> Creoles, which are people of mixed uh, white and African heritage. And I think Afro-Surinamese make up the majority of the population nowadays, right? I believe Creoles are the biggest. No, actually, I think the Hindustanis are the biggest oh, we'll, individual we'll ethnic minority right now. But yeah, we'll get to them. Uh, but I think Creoles are very, very close on their heels. As far yeah, as and I Creole and Maroon together, like all African descended people, I think, are the majority. Yes, yes. When considered as one group. Yeah, Creoles are uh, today, by the numbers I have, are 31% and Maroons are 10%. Okay. And Hindustanis are 37%. So, yeah, Creole mm. and Maroon together would be uh, r- about roughly 40%. About the same, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you talk about that, yeah, the term Hindustani is used by the in, in, in Dutch to refer to these people. Um, basically, three weeks before mm-hmm. the ultimate end of slavery in 1873, a ship called the Lara Rook sailed from Calcutta. And brought four hundred Indian laborers to Suriname, and there's a there's a story told that newly freed slaves who witnessed the Indian workers disembarking at the harbor, reportedly stated uh, "Jobo Tanbasi," which is, I think, uh, Creole for "the white man is still the boss," um, suggesting that they viewed the development as a continuation of the slave trade. Uh, right. And these Indians, a lot, like a lot of Indians clearly came, if they now make up 37% of the population, uh, as yep. part of a deal between the Dutch and the British governments that would send people from largely um, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar provinces of India. Okay. Uh, they would go on five-year contracts, and then they were free to either leave or stay and set up businesses as they saw fit. Right. And the conditions were initially awful because they were working for former slaveholders. Uh, but pressure mm-hmm. from particularly the UK government and the Indian Raj and also the Dutch government not wanting to lose this lucrative lifeline in, in the cheap labour game right. uh, forced better conditions. And more and more Indians came. So we have Amur Indians and Hindustanis, I suppose, are the terms used now to distinguish the two groups of people who are called Indians by, by us. Uh, and then finally... Uh, the Javanese were the last large ethnic group to come in the 1890s. Right. There were about 33,000 Javanese went as indentured servants. About 9,000 of them went home, but still a significant Javanese population. And of course, Java was, was part of the Dutch East Indies, so it was a, another Dutch colony. And shuffling people yeah. between colonies so was pretty them around from, from one colony to another, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, towards the end of the like the start, towards the start of the twentieth century, even with all this cheap labor, the plantation economy became just unprofitable. Uh, a lot of plantations fell into disuse. Without free labor, they just couldn't sustain, um, and they were split up into smaller farms. People started growing bananas, rice, citrus fruits. Uh, logging in the jungles of southern Suriname became popular, 
And also you got some gold mining as well. People started to realise that no. there were natural resources. No. Uh, and a small railway was built from, Canada, from the town of Dam to the capital, Paramaribo, to extract the gold. Oh. But other resources were to come. Just as a side note, um, today, just because I mentioned the other other ethnic groups, mm-hmm. the Javanese today make up about 15% of uh, the ethnic mix of Suriname, okay. uh, or according to the figures that I read. So they're still relatively prominent. So again, I think that kind of gives you an idea of, of, again, just how much of a melting pot this place is. There are people from yeah, like, it's a literally Indian, all over the world. African, Javanese, yeah. Dutch, slightly Jewish former english mix yeah what more could you want mm-hmm. slash natives as well of course all the and i suppose we have all the languages in the mix now too don't we we've got like english as a lingua franca because of various historic reasons well not english but a uh, sranan tongo which is like a an english-based creole mm. right there's various maroon languages various indigenous languages various indian languages uh yeah is is there a version of Hindi that's specific to? What I have here on languages is that uh, 60% of people speak Dutch. Okay. Uh, 33% of people speak Hindustani Caribbean, which I have no idea what that is. Okay. That must be I assume it's like kind a, of a... what happens to Hindi when you live in Suriname for a century. Yeah. 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 Suriname, which is the, 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 Creole the Creole language. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's 26% of, of uh, the language that's spoken. Javanese Caribbean is 13%. Uh, Guyanese Creole English is 11%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there right. are a bunch of smaller ones like um, Hakka Chinese and um, yeah, a, a lot of smaller yeah. languages. Um, yeah, and they, they have you'll notice those numbers add up to more than 100% because everyone yeah. is yeah. multilingual. Yeah, yeah. And apparently the Dutch, the Dutch, I have a friend who is a half Dutch, half Irish. And her comment was basically the way they speak Dutch. If you think of how Jamaicans speak English, yeah, with it's that kind of relationship, accent, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, a Caribbean flavored version of the language. Yeah. Okay. Nothing happens. Nothing at all. Absolute silence. Suriname, in terms of news and developments, is a is a by my notes total wasteland. Avoid nothing. Happily so. Uh, World War One happens. The Great War in Suriname. Buckus. They were uh, the Netherlands were neutral in World War One, so nothing, nothing really happened. So we skip it. World War One. We done. <laughs> the only thing that's happening is bauxite. Ooh, I know how to store up the juicy topics for my sections, guys. I I heard them. Bauxite. I put a bow on it. Uh, 1916. The Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa, which is still a big time, you know mega corporate uh, at the moment uh, they bought the known bauxite fields of Suriname uh, especially around Moengo and along the river Kotika bauxite is if you don't know the ore which is used to make aluminum or aluminium I don't Please. really care which, which aluminium um, in 1933 uh, and again We're nothing not happens 1916 to 1933 nothing can you imagine it not a damn thing happens not a not a blasted thing happens. Trying to keep that explicit label off, guys. Um, in 1933, they become more integrated with uh, uh, <laughs> the, the Dutch kind of colonies uh, as the postal plane Disnip lands at their airport. So they're now linked into the global postal chain. In, 1935, in 1935, the Dutch Minister of Colonies, Colleen, lamented in Parliament, 
everything that has been attempted in Suriname, it all simply failed. In Suriname, the following quote of Colleen is known, let's just flood the colony. Uh, oh, God. Just, oh, my God. It's oh just not Take down on. the dikes, people. Take, take down the, the dikes. It's, it's not worth blank it. space. Yeah. Skip it. Suriname, skip it. Uh, a local remembers the exclamation of those intending to leave. And I, I get, like, so I guess the joke here is that this is all we have, but it was ofteki concomero, which means take a cucumber. <laughs> so I guess they just had cucumbers. I don't know. Um, okay, flash forward, 1939, the beginning of World wow. War II. In late August, a German radio station transmitted instructions to all captains of German ships to proceed full speed to the nearest home port or nearest neutral country. The ship, the Goslar, sailed for Suriname. As the Netherlands was neutral at the time, arriving at Paramaribo on September 5th. As there were no Dutch naval forces at Suriname, she wasn't inspected. And she sat there in the port essentially for about eight months. Uh, her radio had been disabled. Her German captain and crew sought asylum. It was a crew of 16 Germans and 38 Chinese. In 1940, war broke out between Germany and the Netherlands. So Suriname no longer neutral. Early that morning, the police commissioner approached the ship with a detachment of military and police to arrest the crew. The Germans were given a half an hour to pack, but in that time, some of the crew members went below to the engine room and scuttled the boat. So they, they sank the boat. Um, there was no local naval people around, no support. So the Dutch didn't really know what to do to unsink the boat. So the Goslar just filled with water and settled at the bottom of the river uh, on the starboard side, where it remains to this day. And I've seen YouTube videos of people taking little dinghies out to the boat and climbing up on top of it. it there's just a huge German boat. Wow. Still oh, so it's there. not still even there. properly sunk. It's just sort of... It's half sunk. Yeah, it's on its side. It's a river river estuary, no, so it's just kind of shallow. It's different. So, uh, World War II, exports of bauxite increase uh, because you need more aluminum for shooting Nazis. Uh, not far from Pamaribo in uh, 1938, Alcoa was preparing a new base. So this is before the war. Uh, between the site of this new base and the capital of Pamaribo, the only highway in Suriname was built at this time and still exists today. In February 1941, the uh, governor of Suriname, Kjelstra, uh, opened the Paranam factory. Alcoa actually has some stuff on the website in the history of this. The Netherlands Indies company Billiton, also known as BHP Billiton, which is a modern, still a big modern miner, uh, also was active in the area. In 1943, Suriname mines provided 60% of the US need for bauxite uh, and wow. aluminum. Uh, and one year later, uh, production was started in Arkansas and Suriname kind of dropped off uh, as, a, as a share of the economy in that regard. Um, the Suriname riverbeds during those days were not deep enough for the ships to actually take out the bauxite. So the ships were only loaded to about 30% or 40% of capacity. And then they proceeded uh, down the river all the way to Trinidad. And there a second ship would be brought and then they'd, you know, put the loads together into a full ship and send it off mm. to Mobile, Alabama. Uh, and I can only assume that that's why Mobile, Alabama is so racist because uh, of all that bauxite. I don't know. That's, that's the only correlation I have there. Racism, oh, bauxite, the correlation is causation. That's, that's as I remember it from my, my science days. After the outbreak of the war, the US was very worried that the Germans would invade and steal all their lovely bauxite that they were relying on. So they spoke with the uh, colonial French government, sorry, the colonial uh, Dutch government, which was based now in Canada. After war's outbreak, the United States did not want this strategic ore and the Alcoa installations to fall into enemy hands. Uh, the fear was very real. French Guyana was controlled by the pro-German Vichy government, and there were many German immigrants in South America. Hmm? Nothing. Mm. 
Therefore, President Roosevelt, uh, on the 1st of September 1941, this being pre-Pearl Harbor, so America's not actually in the war at this stage, offered Queen Wilhelmina to station 3,000 U.S. infantry and anti-aircraft defense troops in Suriname. Uh, the Dutch wartime government and Governor Kielster were surprised, uh, but kind of had to accept the offer. Uh, the military would be formally under Dutch control, and the Dutch would be paying for the pleasure. The first troops arrived in 1941 in November, and in 1943 they replaced these white troops, predominantly, with Puerto Ricans. So that's more that bauxite racism I was just mentioning that's, earlier. That's kind of weird. It is. Uh, I guess they needed these fighting men for the front, and they didn't want to mix Puerto Ricans with, you know, the, the white soldiers they had for fear of, you know, uh, yeah. damaging morale and so on. Um, right. So local Surinamese complained to the Americans about the condoms found in the streets on Sundays when they went to church. They'd be stepping over piles. <laughs> it's of... very specific. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was a specific account, I think. Uh, the churches organized a committee against moral decline, but the complaints had little impact. The American presence, as it often did in these colonial areas, had a liberating effect because people were like, oh, these Americans, they do what they want, and they they generally pay people regardless of race, and that's all really good, and we like that. We kind of we kind of saw that in um, New Caledonia as well. Exactly. Like the, yes, the, exactly. A very, yeah, very same troops example. coming in had a massive impact on the, on the local population, like the, just the way that they were living. So, uh, the men love to have fun with Surinamese teenage girls, is a quote I found. Uh, at the current location of the Suriname Energy Company, there used to be the American military home with a stage door canteen, which was one of the places of entertainment. Uh, in a totally separate deal, prostitution flourished. Uh, when Dutch Princess Juliana visited from Canada in 1943, they tried to round up the prostitutes to kind of not, not embarrass, not, not let the side down, as they say. Um, and a really cool image I saw, and I urge you to check out the YouTube video of this. When her plane was landing in Suriname for the visit, the people on the ground made a V for victory inside an O for orange, as in the Royal House of Orange, which was her huh. royal family. Um, mm. She went upriver and visited the interior. And I mentioned about, uh, you know, seeing Chinese dragon dances. This is, this is all part of that. She met groups of Maroons, the former slaves who were uh, inter, uh, intermixed now with indigenous uh, groups. Uh, who all welcomed her and a lot, a lot of very polite waving, but, uh, you know, super impressive considering what was going on in the world at the time. Um, Queen Wilhelmina uh, had had made a lot of noises around, you know, you're fighting for freedom, lads, you're fighting for d democracy and these things. And as was often the case, the kind of the, the language that they used encouraged the colonies to kind of get involved with this sort of the implicit idea that they would get more freedom and so on after the war. So this yeah. is so yeah. sowing the seeds for that a little bit. And the Surinamese we, we've were touched on that a lot before. I feel like, and the, and the Surinamese the, the, were the very, whole, you know, like we're 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 fighting for freedom. Yes, and part of that freedom is going to be yours after this war is over. But they buy the into it. Like, oh, great, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Also, there there is now a monument to to the Jewish people who were who were uh, the Surinamese Jewish people who were killed during the war. A hundred and five of them uh, were in the Netherlands for their education, predominantly oh. because there was no universities in Suriname, so they would all travel to the Netherlands for that. Uh, and they were in the Just wrong place at the wrong time. Just to be occupied by the Nazis. Exactly. And mainly in, in Auschwitz. And I think it was 105 uh, Jews overall. And nowadays, apparently, according to the account of the article, there's only about 100 Jews left and only one yeah. synagogue. Yeah. Um, so, uh, And there are also some loan words from uh, Yiddish and Hebrew in the kind of Surinamese Creole uh, mm -hmm. as a result of this too. Skipping a little bit forward, there were some significant air disasters in Suriname during the war. Uh, and there's actually this weird mini documentary around it where a guy goes into the into the jungle and, and finds the wrecks, or at least tries to find them. 
One of the crashed aircraft was a, a DC-3, uh, crashed in 1943 in inaccessible swamp, uh, 150 kilometers west of the capital. The wreck is almost complete, according to the documentary maker. Uh, the people who went down the plane uh, was a crew of four. They stayed there for 11 days with the wreck, and eventually, after plodding through the swamp and dense tropical forest, they eventually found help. The second aircraft is, is even more interesting. It was a C-54. Uh, it killed all 35 passengers, and at the time, was the worst air disaster in the Western Hemisphere. The aircraft was wow. also most likely in its way to the Casablanca conference when it crashed in the jungle. There was rumors of a bomb on board uh, that allegedly forced the pilot, uh, Benjamin Hart, to land in Trinidad and search the plane. No bomb was found. Um, but among those lost was Major Eric Mowbray Knight, author of the much-loved novel, Lassie Come Home. Oh. Uh, yeah. So okay. he died on that plane, apparently. Cool. Um, yeah, so evidence at the crash site allegedly had indicated that the airplane was on a secret mission to North Africa, included were large sums of money and a secret coded documents for British General Sir Harold Alexander. And the, I have a YouTube link to the documentary and stuff. Um, so that's really it for World War II. Uh, afterwards, in 1948, they were given universal suffrage. So mm -hmm. they do get some of that sweet, sweet freedom they're asking for. Uh, the results of the 1949 election, I'm not going to go into the results because, you know, I don't, I don't care all that much, but I will list out all the parties just to give you an idea of how uh, kind of, in a way, fractured society was and, and how many groupings there were. So here is the full list of parties that contested this election. The National Party of Suriname, fair enough. The United Hindustani Party, Yehwe. Mm -hmm. The Party for National Unity and Solidarity. Okay, it sounds like the first one again. The Christian Social Party. Okay. East Indian like Javanese party. Political Party. The International Unemployed Union, the Negro Political Party, <laughs> the Suriname Progressive People's Party, the SPPP, the Union of Indonesians in Suriname, and the Women's Committee. Uh, they, they also get a, a shout out, but just it's just so diverse. It's exhausting. And I like how the Javanese and the Indonesians are different. Yes. Oh, God, no. You don't want to mix those. Good Lord. <clears throat> You want to mix your paprika with your smoked paprika? You out of your mind? Um, anyway, in 1954, they gain autonomous rule, except for issues of the military and issues of foreign affairs, as is as is the style in such things. And, and this has been a policy of the, the government um, in exile, right? They decided that they would, upon getting the Netherlands back, start this process. Uh, maybe, maybe. I think, I think. M maybe if it was 45 before, but beyond that point, they were mm. probably moving out of the exile to back towards uh, the Netherlands. But yeah, it probably mm. was around the time of that transition. I, I, I wanted to talk actually very briefly here about the uh, flag, yep. because it was at this time in 1954 where they adopt the really terrible flag that I mentioned at the top of the... At the top of the show, we will, right. I mean, we, we can put a, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll drop a, an image into the show notes for you guys to take a look at. But um, it's basically just a white field with a black circle. And uh, then there uh, are uh, five ellipse. stars in a circle. Yeah, kind of an a, a ellipse, I guess. It's not yeah, even a circle. Yeah, with five stars, uh, a white star, a black star, a brown star, a yellow star, and a red star. <laughs> really subtle imagery there. Yeah, I assume these are supposed to represent the different ethnic groups, but the white people, the black people, the brown people, the yellow people, and the red people. Yeah, 
you mentioned the 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 MS Paint um, yeah. review mark. This genuinely looks like it might have been designed. No, it's more like a PowerPoint like, clip art sort of thing. It does look like a piece of clip art. Yeah, you're right. That's that's true. Yeah, but it's 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 really terrible. So this is this is where one of the worst flags we've come across comes from is in in 1954. So um, yeah, and as we, as we mentioned, they will later on adopt a a, a much much better flag. Okay, so they they gained uh, autonomous rule in 1954. Uh, got a flag. Um, Princess Juliana now returned in 1955 as queen for another uh, hand waving session at uh, at people of many many different you know all, all creeds and colors. Um, so I found this kind of discussion of Suriname, the kind of the ethnic diversity of it and so on. Um, there was an argument by was a fellow called Van Leer who said that it was one of the finest examples of a plural society. So talking about how the colonial state functioned as the arbiter between population groups of Africans, British Indians, Javanese, etc. And that without this neutral arbiter, chaos would ensue. Uh, he was a, mm. Van Leer was a sociologist and a poet who made his name studying Suriname and you know discussing it at great length. But he was uh, speaking in Dutch, so most of his stuff I can't read. So, you know. T- tough luck, guy. I'm only taking tiny little quotes I found yeah. in other people's books. Um, there's a lot of commentary around <laughs> race and ethnicity in Suriname. Uh, the debate is basically between it's really nice melting pot and it's cool and everyone gets along. Uh, that's that's one side of things. Uh, the other side is that you know colonial governments used it to divide and conquer. That if no group had enough dominance, well, none of them could do squat, frankly. So we're just going to do as we want because we're the colonial power and we've got all the guns. Uh, and we'll be we'll be having your people as slaves, and we'll take all the gold, thank you very much, and all the bauxite as well. So that's a slightly less optimistic view of the kind of multi ethnicity of of Suriname, uh, or at least potentially you know how how it's actually panned out. Um, in 1971, flashing forward, uh, Winty was decriminalized after 93 years. We've already discussed that a little bit. It's kind of a Surinamese African mixed religion type thing. In 1972, there was a census which just kind of gave a, a, a snapshot of the ethnic diversity of, of, of the land. And they, they made a point of kind of asking... In case you haven't heard about it yet, this is a very ethnic, ethnic, yeah. ethnically diverse place. We, we might not have mentioned that yet, but... Um. And again, the, the point was raised here of like, well, should we be asking people if they're Javanese or not? Is that really the issue of a census? You know, kind of are, are we further mm-hmm. increasing the divisions or should we just be counting heads? Uh, that was kind of a debate uh, around the time. Of course, they, they, they asked them if they were Javanese or not, or, you know, and all the other subdivisions. Uh, the East Indians at this point were the largest demographic, followed by the Creole. Now we're moving towards uh, independence. Uh, this is kind of a, a problematic political time. Prime Minister Pengel uh, and his successor, Sedney, uh, had a lot of unhappiness domestically with the poor socioeconomic situation. Uh, there were strikes in the schools, there were strikes in the Suriname Aluminum Company, known as Suralco. Uh, and in early 1973, there was a general strike. So economically, the place is in tatters, it's not going well. In 1973, there was an election and the National Party won the victory. Aaron, uh, who was chairman of this party, formed a new government, uh, which in 1974 Oof. announced that it wanted to make uh, the country independent by the end of 1975. Which was a big surprise, because not even his own party was really that into the idea of independence yeah just kinda like, i mean that, that caused it. a lot of a lot of division because um like the, the you know aaron and and his the political leadership of, of that party had never stated that as a mandate exactly so right. sort of 
you know, the, what I was thinking about was like it was kind of akin to, you know, if 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 um, you know, you'd elected, let's say, the the conservatives in the UK, and then suddenly they said, "We're going to leave the European Union after you've elected yeah. us," you know, like. <laughs> uh whoops like we yeah. forgot to tell you that but now that we're in power we're gonna make this we're just gonna do it move towards independence that would never happen yep uh, anyway yeah. people were very surprised as you say and people were all, all in a tither tiz about it um and yeah ba- basically in october 1975 a law amending the kingdom charter was accepted in the dutch parliament and they they were then basically independent the Suriname's independent now. It's his own country. Totally independent. Yep. Uh, and immediately, about 40,000 people left the country, mainly for the Netherlands. So, yep. like, and you would and assume the, the, also the, they would be the most educated. They'd have the most economic means because they're able to afford air travel or, you know, the ship travel or whatever. So, a big and old the demographics of, the of that are interesting. Leads. Like, um, much of the sort of Boero population and the, 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 the right. Dutch, Dutch white population left there's only about a thousand of them left nowadays and uh many of the remaining jews as well also yeah just yeah. checked out at that point we're done but also a lot of the um more educated chinese and indians decided that being dutch was more useful to their family's future than being surinamese yeah and i think i think if you're surinamese you could get a dutch a, like yeah. a dutch passport dutch citizenship at this time so i mean that was obviously very attractive um, so I mean, yeah, made it very easy. For so most to, ethnic to Chinese people that. in the Netherlands are are Surinamese Chinese, I think. Yeah, or at least a significant chunk. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you're right. A big group did leave uh, of uh, Surinamese Chinese. Okay, so we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back with uh, independence up to the modern day. <laughs> Alright, so in 1975, uh, Suriname becomes independent. I'm going to talk a little bit about the flag now, which I've mentioned before. Um, Luke really likes flags. I do, I do. Red hot flag action. Yeah, so the flag is formed by five horizontal bands of different colors. Uh, green is at the top and the bottom. White in uh, after the green, and then a big band of red in the middle. Uh, quadruple width. And there's a big yellow five-pointed star in the middle of the red band and the star symbolizes the five continents from which the inhabitants of Suriname migrated to this place. So from mm-hmm. Africa, America, Australia, Asia, and Europe. And the fact that they're form a part of a star uh, represents the unity of all the ethnic groups. That's nice. And it was adopted upon independence in 1975. And the red stripe stands, stands for progress and love, apparently. The green for hope and fertility and the white bands for peace and justice and we'll put a put a link to that and a, a, an image of the flag in the show notes as we usually do it's, it's a yeah, strong it's a, flag all around very nice looking flag it look yeah. it, it it wouldn't look out of place in africa it's got a kind of an african color scheme sensibility 
No, it's a it's a, it's a great looking flag. I, I think it's one of the better ones that we've we've encountered. Luke said, wants to so. kiss his flag in the mouth, yeah, listeners. Being no doubt, he's printed it out and he's he's doing I some do. lip work on it. He's kissing the flag. So, I mean, moving backwards slightly, uh, just for a second, yeah. like between the forties no. and the fifties, yeah, yeah, very very briefly, uh, between the forties and the fifties, as the place became more self-governing, ethnic groups began to form into different political allegiances and parties. So the Creoles, uh, like we talked about, joined the largely Protestant Suriname National Party, the NPS, and the Catholic population joined the Progressive People's Party, the PSV, and the Hindustanis formed the VHP. So the, the, the two that you need to keep an eye on uh, are the Surinamese National Party, which are mostly Dutch and Creoles, and the VHP, which are mostly Hindustanis. They're, they're the two biggest ethnic groups at this time. Okay. As you mentioned, Mark, the NPS like were voted in in, in was it um, 74? 74. And then yeah. independence was pushed through into in, in 75. So as I mentioned, there was no mandate for independence, and the, the Dutch and, and Creoles were kind of the ones that were pushing for independence and the Hindustanis were not super keen on this idea. So uh, immediately when the NPS announced its plans for independence, the Hindustani party, you know, were, were reluctant, uh, to say the least, and asked that there be new elections held on the basis of, you know, a, a, a vote for independence. But um, of course, the NPS were happy to go ahead. I mean, they, they felt like they had a <laughs> They no, won no, the elections good. and they felt like they had a mandate, even though they hadn't, they hadn't actually declared that mandate beforehand. So yeah, in 1975, then the 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 country becomes, I wouldn't say reluctantly independent, but you know, conflicted. A lot of people that it's are not about its independence. Uh, very keen to become independent. Yeah, yeah. and a, a guy called Hank Aaron, uh, who you you talked about briefly yeah, earlier, Mark, he becomes the first prime minister of Suriname, uh, and he's the leader of the NPS. So at this same time, around 1975, a guy called Desi Bouderzee, who people may have heard of, uh, returns from the Netherlands, where he had been serving in the military. So he goes the opposite direction, where a lot of people are leaving. Uh, Bouderzee moves back. He's like, we're independent now. Like, I'm a Surinamese citizen. I had been serving in the Netherlands in the military. And he's like, I want to be at the, you know, at the grassroots level of setting up a Surinamese military force. Okay. Seems reasonable. Yep. So in the immediate aftermath of independence, there was a brief reconciliation between Aaron and Lachman, a guy called Jagannath Lachman, who is great the leader name. of the uh, VHP, the Hindustani party. It has a great name, yes. And basically, as part of this reconciliation, Aaron promises Lachman that there will be uh, elections that will take place uh, within about six months after independence. And it actually takes until 1977, over two years later, uh, for these these promised mm-hmm. elections to actually happen. Yes. Sounds good. Democratic, good. Within that period, resentment begins to, to, to build up between these two parties. And again, because they're drawn, the two the, the bases of the two parties are drawn from, from the ethnic minorities in Suriname. It, it becomes become more and more ethnic tensions, I guess. Sounds um, good. Sounds safe. Underlie this this period. Yeah. I should mention that for a lot of this section, I'm I'm drawing from a book by a guy called Edward M. Dew, who's a academic who's written a lot about Suriname, and his book, The Trouble, spoiler, in Suriname, uh, 1975 to 1993. So I've I've taken a couple of um, you know, big chunks of of my my research from him. Okay, so yeah, in the build up to these 1977 elections, then you know there were obviously 
tense uh, debates and and kind of campaigns held on both sides between the the VHP and the uh, NPS, and it was widely predicted that Lakman's side, the Hindustanis, the VHP, would win and that he would become the new prime minister. And I guess in you know since independence had happened, almost twelve thousand uh, Hindustanis had emigrated to the Netherlands, oh. and yeah. And they hadn't really counted on that, um, I guess, or hadn't really factored that into their, their polling data. Yeah, the, the National Party, Aaron's National Party, were returned by just over 2,000 votes in this oh. 1977 election. So a very slim majority. That helps because it, it, it means that um, he has an even more shaky uh, hand on power and the population becomes even more divided. And this one speaker at this time noted that the behavior of the opposition parties quote, threatens to start us down a road that must put an end to democracy. So uh, that actually turned out to be quite a, a prescient statement. Yeah. So in 1979, tensions rose further and one of the parties split from the National Party, leaving uh, Aaron's governing party with 20 seats to the opposition's 19. And oh. then one of the uh, National Party's politicians died, oh. pretty much uh, leaving it as, as uh, gridlock 19 to 19. Aaron then finally had to give in and promise elections within six months in order to get the, the government going again. Don't like the sound of that. Those would take place in uh, early 1980. Also in 1979, this guy Bowdersay, who's been lurking in the background and working with the military, accepts a request from a guy called Roy Horb to become uh, chairman of the new Surinamese military union. It's a bit of a, a weird point that, like, uh, uh, you know, a military would have a, a union. Yeah. Uh, as uh, you know, but this actually ends up being detrimental to, you know, because he, uh, this guy about has a, has a lot of control then and, and influence within the military, even though yeah. he's not necessarily part of the leadership, and that uh, that doesn't go well. Uh, the New Year's address in 1980 by the chairman of the parliament includes the following passage. I'm going to read uh, directly from Mr. Dew's book here. Looking back at 1979, we have to admit that it has not been the year that brought us closer in national unity. It was not the year in which a new Suriname finally emerged. With all our hearts, we'd hoped that at the end of 1979, we could proudly say that production, devotion to to duty, honesty, and love of country and people had risen. Alas, we have recorded just the opposite. Flight from Suriname, criminal assaults on the streets, and even in the home. Avoidance of work and negativism in our development and conduct have been predominant. So that gives you a little bit of an idea as to what the mood of the the nation was like at the time coming into 1980 when these elections were about to take place. So Bowdersay, this guy who's uh, leading the military union, uh, he sees an opportunity here and, you know, doesn't like the way that things are going. Uh, On the night of February 22nd, just about a month before the uh, 1980 elections are due to take place, Bowdersay and his men uh, raid a weapons magazine and Never a good start. Are t- are discovered uh, thanks to a barking dog. Okay. Um, yeah. And Aaron, the prime minister, was informed about this and chose to do nothing. Oh, uh, apparently, two days later, then they seized an army barracks and killed the guard on duty, while another detachment ra- uh, raided a marine base. And Bowdersay soldiers also shot and burned down a central police station of Suriname, which is in Paramaribo. Okay. At 7.30 p.m. the following day on February 26th, the Minister for Justice turns the government over to the military and urging cooperation in the name of peace and urges cooperation in the name of peace. 
This would later be known as the Sergeant's Coup and puts uh, this guy Desi Bowdersay in charge of Suriname. That was quite smooth. Yeah, well, five people were killed in the transition um, and a lot of, uh, you know, there was obviously a lot of fighting in the streets and that sort of thing. But mm. um, yeah, I mean, it's a small country, he's now in charge. So. so Aaron, the prime minister and other uh, politicians were placed under house arrest and up to 300 people fled into French Guiana. Uh, the president refuses to recognize the military mi- regime. So he appoints this guy called Henk Chin Ah Sen to lead the Republican Party, uh, the National Party. But five months later, there's another coup against that government. And the army then replaces the president uh, with this guy, Chin Ah Sen. <laughs> so he's gone from prime minister to um, to newly installed president because he, I guess he seemed malleable. Hmm. Uh, they were happy to work with him. I assume he's Chinese, right? Yeah, he's part of the uh, Chinese ethnic minority, yeah. And in the immediate aftermath of this coup, Bowdersay institutes a curfew, shuts down all but one newspaper, and curtails freedom of assembly. Actually, an interesting uh, anecdote from Edward Dew's book is that uh, over the years, it had become common practice for government workers to show up at 7 a.m. and clock into their offices and then go off and work different jobs, like private jobs. Um, That's how to do it. Bowdersay's government now, like you know, clamped down on on uh, corruption and 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 all this sort of thing, and enforced the office work hours that were were being reported. And many government offices then were forced to admit that they didn't actually have enough desks to seat all the people that were on the payroll for their offices. <laughs> it's around this time in the early seventies that uh, the CIA plans a coup to oust Bowdersay from Suriname, which I, I mean, they were in the, you know in the market for uh, ousting dictators. So was, so, was he uh, causing trouble with regard to the aluminium or anything like that? I or? think I don't think he was necessarily causing uh, massive issues in that in that or sense, but cozy he, with I the think Soviets. they were worried that he would. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they planned to, to install somebody who would, who would be a bit more easy to work with. Uh, so there's a CNN report that I found here from the early 70s. I'll just insert a quick clip of that here. Your head down. These men are Surinamese citizens, resistance fighters determined to liberate their country. They are being trained in French Guiana by American soldiers of fortune. In this exclusive CNN report, the two American mercenaries known as Dr. John and Boss told us about their efforts. I was retained by the Council for the Liberation of Suriname last year to prepare various military options uh, that would enable the Council to regain their country from the dictator Bouterset down here now training uh, this cadre who will then in turn train more of their own people and hopefully will be launching an offensive uh, against the dictator in the not too distant future. Uh, in March of 1982, an attempted counter-coup by members of the previous regime uh, was almost pulled off, but Bowdersay managed to remain in power. And he would get revenge for this after a few months. In December, 15 prominent Surinamese men uh, connected with the coup attempt are brought to Fort Zealandia, which is uh, Bowdersay's basically private fiefdom, uh, where they are tortured and then killed. And this became known as the December Murders. That's grim. Yeah. He apparently summoned the original 16 commandos that he had completed his coup with to carry out the executions. And there would be no trial for any of these people uh, until 2007, 25 years later. Amid massive protests against these the December murders, Bowdersay closes the University of Suriname 
And also the Netherlands basically cuts off all aid to Suriname, which it had been providing up until this point. Okay. Um, yeah. Seems reasonable. Yeah. In 1983, then the House and Senate Intelligence Committees in the U.S. call off the overthrow of, of Bouterseh because they wanted apparently to try less extreme measures, I guess, and uh, probably they were getting some PR flack as well for, you know, various different interventions in, in South and Central America. So uh, in 1986, the Maroons began a jungle war against Bouterseh in, in um led by a former associate of, of Bouterseys. And uh, early on in the conflict, uh, Bouterseys forces inc- deal a crushing blow to them. They uh, attacked a Maroon village of Moiwana, home of the guy who was leading the Maroon forces, and massacred 39 people, mostly women and children. Oh, my God. And destroyed the village and burned down most of the, most of the houses there. So in 1989, the following year, Bouterseys assumed direct responsibility for those, those murders. So he's a knight, you know, you're getting a, a pretty pretty clear idea of what kind of a guy this is. Shooty, killy, murder them all kind of guy. Destined yeah. for the Hague in and response, not for holidays. The, yeah. In response, the Maroons began a kind of guerrilla campaign against the government. And over the next five years or so, they attacked dams and mines and different institutions around Suriname, which eventually brought the government to the negotiating table. It actually when they managed to shut down a valuable bauxite mine, that was when the government had to kind of, you know, form a peace treaty with them. In 1999, Bouterseh was convicted in absentia in the Netherlands to 11 years in prison. Great. For drug drug trafficking. Uh, what, was point, drug trafficking? Yep. 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 This is just a side Again. business. Or... Oh, this is just a, yeah, this is just, I mean, something that he's, he's, he's doing in his free time. It's an interest. It's an interest. All right. So not not for not for like extrajudicial murders, not for coups, drug trafficking. No, that's his job, no. Joe. Drug trafficking. That's his day to day. Yeah, this is an interest. Yeah. that's a hobby. Yeah. So Europol issues an international arrest warrant for him, which is still in place today. Uh, spoiler alert: He actually wasn't. He actually hasn't been arrested yet. What? Um, yeah. Oh, where it, it gets he? even better. It gets even better. Hold on, you'll find out where uh, he is. I, I actually haven't read any of this. Oh no. Okay. In August 2005, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights orders Suriname to pay $3 million to the 130 survivors of the Moiwana massacre. Bouterseh basically just says, nah, I'm not going to do that. And in 2010, Bouterseh is elected president of Suriname (laughs) with 36 36 of the 51 votes. Yes. That's like, that's That's recently. That's now. That's very recently, yes. Uh, After becoming president... Is he still? He is, again, spoiler alert, he is still president of uh, Suriname today. Come on! Yes. That's gross. No, no. Yep. This is what I was talking about, about the, the, the worst president at the top of the episode. He is, I yes, thought this is just I mean, a generic We probably shouldn't laugh about it, but yeah, he's, he's still in charge of Suriname today. I believe um, he campaigned for president because he knew that this uh, Europol charge was coming up. And there's something to do with immunity, where yeah, like a president yeah. has has immunity from certain things. Sure. Um, Murder charges. Yeah. Uh, on and even more kind of terrible. The day after he becomes president, essentially, he designates February 25th, the anniversary of his coup, as a national holiday, and is still commemorated in the spot where he burned down the police station in Paramaribo. 
today. Okay. Uh, in 2015, U.S. prosecutors captured Dino Bowdersay, who is uh, Desi Bowdersay's son, during a sting uh, in which he invited people that he, he thought were from Hezbollah oh my God. to establish a base in Suriname in exchange for $2 million U.S. dollars. That is cheap for uh, a Hezbollah base. It's not a yes. great look. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison and also admitted to drug trafficking and firearms charges. And I, I was reading a news report about this from Reuters. It says, um, to quote directly from it, it said, for $2 million in cash up front, Bowdersay would provide secure f- facilities in Suriname where a Shiite militant group could train 30 to 60 men. He would also supply rocket launchers, landmines, and other weapons that could be used to strike U.S. targets. Quote, uh, we'll have to bleep this. You f*** the Dutch and we'll f*** the Americans, one of the Hezbollah envoys said at one point. Bowdersay says in response, I'm totally behind you. And later, he sent a text message to one of his friends in Suriname saying, we hit the jackpot. I can only imagine maybe with a with an emo- a smiley emoji or a thumbs up or something. But yeah. It's a, maybe it's the CIA made the wrong family. call on this guy. Uh, mm, it might have done, yeah. Uh, he managed to evade uh, trial for the, this, the December murders until mid-2017. Mm-hmm. And eventually the government ordered a, gov- uh, a prosecutor to deliver a verdict. The prosecutor read his conclusions and demanded a 20-year sentence for uh, Desi Bowdersay, arguing that he was the one behind the murders and was present, and although he was unable to prove that he pulled the trigger. In response, Bowdersay implied that he was not willing to accept the conviction by the court, as he was, quote-unquote, appointed by God. Well, that's fine then. Uh, he should have just said... I didn't know you could use that in court. Like, yeah. you're sentenced to five years in prison. I don't want to do that, though, because uh, God says because I'm appointed by God. Yeah. So, see ya. Yeah, I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll round off the section with the last terrible bullet point, which is he was re-elected unopposed as president on 14th of July, uh, 2015. Oh, so that's like yesterday. <sighs> yeah. Um, okay, so just in terms of modern day stuff, uh, I don't actually have loads. One thing is sport. Uh, the football team has had some respectable results. But the real important thing about Suriname is actually the connection with uh, the Netherlands. The diaspora is worth considering as a as a sporting force. See if you'd fancy lining up a team against this crowd of, of people with Surinamese backgrounds. Rude Hullet, Frank Rijkaard, Edgar Davids, Clarence Seydorf, Patrick Clivert, and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Hmm. Even wow. I've heard of some of them. They, that is that is serious business. That's a formidable team. Um, yeah. There's also, uh, they had a swimmer, uh, Anthony Nesty. He's the only Olympic medalist for Suriname who won gold in the 100 meters butterfly in uh, Seoul in 1988 and won bronze in uh, 1992 at Barcelona. I would also mention also still the bauxite. They are ninth in the world for bauxite production still. And there is also their, I mean, they have the this access to the Amazon rainforest and they have some amazing animals. I'm going to mention two or three. Uh, I was reading about this uh, um, uh, effort from Conservation International, which catalogued 1,300, almost 1,400 species in a mountainous region of southeastern Suriname, including 60 new species. Uh, So some of what they documented were, and I quote, the bug-eating conehead, the Lilliputian dung beetle, uh, the fer de lance viper, the wolf spider, and the poison dart frog. Uh, the, it's, oh, it, great names! It's a pretty amazing, uh, and, and they are one of only two countries in South America to drive on the left. That is that is it for me. On the correct side, yeah, uh, <laughs> drive correctly. 
All right, I think it's about time we wrapped it up. Um, if you want to find more episodes of the show, you can do so at 80dayspodcast.com. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 80dayspodcast. Uh, this month, we want to thank a new patron, Mark Wood. Thank you very much, Mark, for your generous support. If you want to find more about what becoming a patron of the show entails, you can visit that website, patreon.com forward slash 80dayspodcast. You can also get in touch with us directly by email at... 80dayspodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to uh, help other people find the show. And don't forget you can check out our show notes for more information on Suriname or any of our past episodes. Mark, where can people find more about you on the internet? Uh, I'm at MarkBoyle86 on Twitter and I've got a blog called The Toner of Leak leak is in the vegetable uh, and just put in wordpress when you google it and it'll pop right up and people can find me on time to burn.com that's by or ne and i'm also on twitter but i won't try and spell it you can find me on twitter at the luke j kelly or at my website lukejkelly.com thank you very much for listening and we'll see you guys next time thank you bye bye bye